Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast, I interview emerging artist and painter Anastasia Tarasenko. Born in Kiev, Ukraine, Anastasia moved to New York City with her family at six years of age and has lived in the city ever since. She attended art schools early on and ultimately received her MFA from the New York Academy of Art in 2017. Uh, I met her and first viewed her work during the 2020 Spring Break Art Show which I must say is a non-traditional exhibition platform that features unknown, emerging, mid-career, and beyond artists. Thank you, Jerry Saltz, for bringing it to my attention. I was captivated with her paintings, which some would most likely label as disturbing, warped, and twisted, but of course I was fascinated and could study her work for hours. I should also mention that Anastasia paints on copper. Her work is more provocative than the reclusive outsider artist Henry Darger, who actually passed away more than two decades before Anastasia even began to draw as a child, so there's no question that he did not influence her work, yet her work is equally as strange. Now is the time to focus on Anastasia as her career begins to blossom. She will be in two group shows during the summer of 2020 and a New York City solo debut in the fall. My final note, in my opinion, Sigmund Freud and his peers, once upon a time, would definitely have aimed to destroy her unique intellect if allowed. And with that, enjoy her. And welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Let's start with you telling us about yourself. Um, give us an idea of what your childhood was like, and when did you realize that you are innately an artist? Well, first, thank you for having me. This is an amazing honor, and I'm really happy to be here. Um, so to answer the question, I knew I was an artist. I guess knowing you're an artist sounds like a lofty thing to say. I was drawing from a very early age. Um, I spent a lot of time alone, even though I had two older sisters. Both of them also drew. So I always had access to some sort of pencils or papers or something. So I'd always keep little notebooks. And I would be drawing from a very, very early age. And um, so I would have, like, uh, binders full of fashion designs, you know? Um, looking, I, My memories of them, they were really good, you know? <laughs> but <laughs> looking back, if I ever find them again, I'm pretty sure my parents threw them out by now. They were probably awful, you know? So our childhood memories are of good drawings, but I would love to see what I drew like as a kid. Were your sisters drawing? My sisters, with, with both you? of them were drawing, yeah. With um, 
Mm, separately. Separately. But definitely my, I have a much older sister. She's 10 years older than me. And she was drawing all the time. Um, so I kind of got it from her. I, I admired her so much, you know, and I got her art supplies and her papers and I would doodle on her drawings. She would hate that. I'm sure she was flattered. I'm sure she was <laughs> yeah. flattered. And then I would also have a secret book of drawings where I would draw little naughty things, mm. you know, just like any kid discovering a new language or a new set of images. I would draw little naughty things just for myself that I would either rip up and throw away right away so my mom doesn't find it, or I would sort of find a secret place to stash them. So how, how old were you? Was this pu- pubescent or was this... Uh, pr- pubescent, prepubescent, probably I was like eight, nine years old. Okay. Yeah, okay. just about then. Um, even when I was in Ukraine, I remember I would be drawing all the time there too um you know we had we didn't have uh we didn't have video games or anything so I spent a lot of time alone a lot of time drawing and um a lot of time playing with my other sister who's two years older than me um so that was our fun so what did the drawings look like um so apart from the fashion stuff um I was really into fantasy so science fiction fantasy And then I was really into um, making little naughty doodles of naked women, specifically. I was not into naked men at all. I guess I just didn't know what they looked like, so I didn't care. Um, So I would draw, like, little naked women everywhere, and I would giggle and hee-hee, you know, and (laughs) rip them up and, you know, maybe share them with some of my friends, you know, and they would do the same thing. Um, So I guess that was, like, our version of internet porn at the time. You know, (laughs) we had a network of exchanging drawings. Um, and this was like, this was about like in the, in the mid nineties, mid late nineties, um, before internet became a huge thing. So we had a, we got a computer after a couple of years of living in America, we finally got a computer and we didn't have full internet access. We had net zero. I don't know if you remember. (laughs) I don't don't remember. Net zero was free internet. Um, but you had to sit through, I don't know, a crazy amount of ads and about 30 minutes of loading time per page. Oh, yeah. um, so you had to really want to use the internet. <laughs> um, so that was uh, that was my access to exploring that set of imagery from an early age, was by drawing my own version of it. Because I just didn't, you know, kids these days, I think, have a very different uh, experience with that than I did. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I'm, I'm sure your experiences are better than some of the experiences these kids are having now. Yeah. So I know your family left. Uh, you were in New York. Mm-hmm. What was your early childhood like? So I was born in Kiev, Ukraine in 1989, which was right at the cutoff of um, the collapse of the Soviet Union. I think 89 was when the Berlin Wall fell. And then shortly after that, everything collapsed. So I was the youngest of three kids, which for a Soviet family is incredibly unusual. Most people have one kid, maybe two kids. Three kids was extraordinarily weird. And my mom hid her pregnancy from even her parents until she was practically in labor because she was mocked. She was heavily made fun of for keeping a third child. Amazing. Yeah. And um, the Soviet Union, you know, I just learned that recently myself, too, because I knew that abortion was like a pretty, um, uh, it was not only legal, but it was... Everybody was doing it, and they had some incredibly progressive liberal policies regarding abortion. The Soviet Union was one of the first uh, European countries to legalize it. Not one of the first, it was the first. And it was quite commonplace. So that, as a form of family planning, I guess I should say, because resources were super scarce. It was really poor, you know, I come, we were in a really poor family in a poor neighborhood, and food was, you know, rationed, especially at that time, food rationing was a big thing. And 
So I remember, you know, I feel like a like an imposter sometimes talking about this because I was a small kid. I was six years old when I left, you know, so my memories are that of, of a child. And when you're a kid, you don't, you're not familiar with any other kind of opposing experiences. So you think everything is normal. Right. So I thought it was normal that, you know, if we had a banana, we would split it three ways, you know, a banana, which by the way, was a, a complete luxury thing, a, a rarity, right? And having a banana was like, whoa, crazy. Um, same thing with like things like hot dogs, right? You know, a hot dog was like, also we would split it three ways among three sisters and you know, I just remember we always had food on the table. Um, it was uh, meat was a luxury too. I remember my mom saying food rationing was about um, you either get a ration. I may be butchering the numbers on this, but it was either one kilogram of meat per month or ten kilos or five kilos of, of bones. So we would get my mom would you know get the bones um, because you could make more broths and bone broths and all that stuff with bones, and. Um, Food was a uh, food was scarce and rare, especially when you're when you're feeding three kids instead of one or two. Um, so I have those kind of memories in the Soviet Union. But I thought it was normal. I thought it was okay. You know, everybody else was going through the same stuff. It was not unusual. So when we moved to America, we were called over by relatives who had moved a couple of years prior to America, and there was um, there were a lot of programs at that time in the mid '90s that helped Jews. Um, as refugees to America because Ukraine, Russia, et cetera, was, is notoriously anti-Semitic still to this day. So most of the Jew, uh, most of the immigrants that came over from, uh, the former Soviet Union were Jewish in the mid nineties. I think that's definitely changing now. Um, cause those, those programs are done, they're over. Um, so anyway, so we benefited from one of those refugee programs. We came over to the United States. My parents like sold everything and, you know, we moved into an apartment in South Brooklyn, um, to an amazing neighborhood. I lived there literally my whole life. When I moved back to New York, I moved back to that same neighborhood. Uh, Spensonhurst, South Brooklyn. Um, very not cool, but very vibrant, um, very diverse, very cool. Everybody was from somewhere else. You know, nobody was an American. Nobody was born there. Um, so I went to great school. You know, I had a really great experience. It wasn't really until later or after somebody told me that God, we were struggling or we were poor. Um, my dad, who was an engineer in the Soviet Union, when we first moved here for the first few years, he was cleaning up parks, you know, getting whatever jobs he could get. You know, my mom was a, a home attendant, you know. Um, and I remember one specific memory. I had started school and I remember my parents were fighting and they were like, I don't remember what they were fighting about, but they said $200. Like we have $200 until the end of the month. I didn't understand that what they were fighting about was the fact that $200 is not a lot of money. I thought $200 was the largest quantity of money I had ever heard of. So I went to school the next day and I started bragging to all my friends, my parents have $200. That's cute. That's cute. And I didn't realize that. I felt like an idiot. I told my sister and she's like, do you realize that $200 is not enough to get through the rest of the month? <laughs> do you have memories of seeing someone eat an entire banana or a, or a child having their own hot dog? It wasn't, no, not until I moved to America. Yeah, but I, yeah. Do you remember what you thought the first time you saw that? Um, I was like, wow, we could get anything in the stores here, everything. I was fascinated by ketchup, most of all, because I'd never seen anything like it. I hated it. <laughs> I was like, what is this creamy goo? Um, but... Um, there was just such an abundance here that I just was so unfamiliar with. I was like, what do you mean we could just go to the store and spend 25 cents on a bunch of bananas or 
bag of potato chips and everything felt so abundant. And, you know, that was so not the case, especially in the mid 90s. Things were tight, tight in um, Ukraine. My sister was describing that money there was like uh, it was like bricks. It was worthless. You know, we'd have like a stack of money and they you could literally build a fire with them and you'd probably get more out of the money you know, a little bit of warmth because you couldn't buy anything with it. And then America was like this land of plenty, you know, can't describe that enough. You know, just how privileged I feel that my parents moved here and took us out of that and brought us here and really struggled for the first like 10 years of us being here, you know, and just the privilege I feel of being an artist here too is, you know, something that I wouldn't be able to afford to do if we had stayed or you know, so, so it's like being an artist is a privileged thing, even though I have no money, I'm not making money. You know what I mean? It still feels like a huge, enormous luxury privilege to me because I can make that decision and I can also speak my mind freely. And I could also, um, make art about certain contentious things and not be disappeared, you know, it's <laughs> you know? scary. Or, yeah, exactly. The thought, right? Yeah, that, but that you know, happens. Exactly, and it could happen. Is also what keeps me thinking harder, working harder. That it could happen to us, you know. And sometimes you kind of get a little glimpse of what could happen if things continue going in the way that they're going, you know. So you got to hold on. We got to hold on tight. I think. Yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. Tell us about. Tell me. Tell us about your experience getting your MFA. Uh, how did you, because you transitioned from illustration. Yeah. Share with us that. Yeah. So illustration was the, what appeared to be the practical choice to make art because um, I didn't know that fine art was a thing. You know, I didn't, my parents encouraged me to make art as a kid because it helped me get into um, public school programs in New York City. Like New York City has some amazing public schools that allow you to get in according to testing and whatever, and you don't have to pay anything. So my parents took advantage of that from an early age. So they encouraged me to draw so that I could get into like gifted and talented sort of schools. Um, but then when it came time to go to college, they were like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, art is not an option, you know, but I was like, listen, I'm paying for my own school. I'm indebting myself. I'm going to make my own decision. Oh, really? So even yeah. though they didn't discourage you as a child, they mm-hmm. discouraged you as a, exactly. a, young, so a had, young adult. While both of my sisters did draw, they didn't want to pursue it through college. One of them is a doctor now. The other one is an accountant. So it's like, you know, they did the practical things. Um, you know, I, th- I think especially coming from an immigrant background, um, your parents want to make sure that you have a better life than they did, you know, that you don't struggle. And they saw the word artist and they saw a struggle. They only saw not making money. Um, in Russian, the word artist has the same root as the word skinny. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a joke like artists, you know, like you're always hungry. Yeah. So Mal- malnourished. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And in Soviet Russia, like uh, as an artist, you were either an agent of the state, you know, and you make propaganda pictures or you are subversive and you disappear, you know. So it just wasn't a thing. Nobody was an artist. It was kind of a luxury that nobody could afford. So um, so I did it anyway. I was like, you know what? You're not paying for my college tuition. And at that point, I had zero concept of money or debt. So I'm like, I don't care. I'm signing all the student loan forms. I'm indebting myself for tens of thousands of dollars because I don't care and money doesn't exist. 
you know, of course, later on. I for the love of art. Is. For the love of for art. For the right? love of art, yes. yeah. Yes. But, you know, later on, I'm like, oh, shit, money actually is real. <laughs> and I do need to pay my bills. And that yeah. does suck. Um, but, you know, I went to school for illustration. And I thought that would be the right thing to do. I was a huge fan of sci-fi and fantasy illustration growing up. Like Frank Frazetta, you know, was a huge thing for me as a kid. Like Boris Vallejo. And these were all like these very muscled um, people with little bikinis on, slaying dragons with swords and stuff, right? So what did your work look like? Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Something, you know, like teenage drawings of dragons and, you know, the women with very big boobs and tiny, tiny little nipple tassels, you know, with big swords and shit and blood. And I was, you know, I felt so bad for my teachers growing up because I'm like this 14-year-old kid and I'm drawing naked (laughs) things, you know, and they're like, they don't know what to do with me. They don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. They're like, oh, Anastasia, you do whatever you want to do. We're not even going to say anything about this. Did did they ever question or wonder what inspired those images in your, in your, in your brain? Um, I think I I did get in trouble at at one point in junior high school. Um, I had a book of poems, um, that I wrote really cheeky poems. Um, so as a kid, I was exploring this, the dark side, right, as kids do. And I wasn't a depressed or sad kid, but I really was fixated with, like, death and suicide. You know, like a goth kid with, you know, metal, listen to metal music. Um, I was really attracted to the darkness. You were, know? were your parents freaked out? So freaked out. I bet. I so bet. freaked out. They didn't yeah. let me wear black clothes. They, they didn't get it. They were super, <laughs> super freaked out. That's funny. I come from a conservative religious background. Like, they just didn't know what to do with me, and neither did teachers either. But for me, it was all in good fun. I'm like, oh, this is just me having fun. I'm Look at me, I'm a happy kid. But, you know, I'm writing these like angsty poems, you know. Um, I had a blast. You know, all my friends had a blast. But one time I left my notebook. I think I did it on purpose. If I remember correctly. Subconsciously. I, left, I subconsciously yeah. left it on purpose. I yeah. wanted it to be found because I wanted to shock somebody or something, you know, like any kid does. Yeah, because your art, your work is shocking. Right, right. And I, I had those Not impulses. Not you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit, like, I want this to be found. What are they going to think? They're going to think I'm so cool. See, if I was an artist, I probably would have behaved <laughs> like that. <laughs> and I'm like, shit, yeah, they don't actually think it's cool. They're terrified. <laughs> um, they're worried about me. And I, I had a run in and I was like, I was scared shitless because I didn't anticipate them to send me to like a, a therapist and try to get at whether I'm, you know, actually suicidal or anything. And I remember I had a, a teacher, a vice principal at the time, who sat me down in her office. And this was in South Brooklyn, in Coney Island. And she's got this really thick Brooklyn accent, you know, long fingernails, like really a lot of jangly jewelry. And she just looks at me and she's like, Are you suicidal, honey? <laughs> <laughs> like point blank. Not even a hello. Sits me down, asks me that question. And I'm like, oh, no. I'm just having fun. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I couldn't articulate. You know, I could, right, ar- I could articulate that now. Right, right. But I, I was so scared, you know. And um, so, yeah, I had like a couple therapist appointments. And the therapist was like, dude, you're fine. You know, <laughs> everybody relax. She's fine. She's cool. She's just exploring Yes. whatever kids need to explore at this age because they don't quite understand it. You know, I didn't quite understand what death was or suicide or blood or any of those things, but they seemed cool, you know? And then later on I look back and I cringe now and I'm like glorifying any of those things. You know, you kind of, as an adult, gain a huge sense of empathy for other people suffering or for suffering in general. That as a kid, you're still 
exploring what any of it means, especially when you don't have parents or teachers or anybody that really talks to you in any sort of intelligent way about those things. So that was my way of doing it. Uh, since then, I sort of found a, a better way to, to <laughs> express those thoughts and feelings and those impulses. Um, you know, but I still have those awesome childhood memories of sitting in an office terrified. terrified. I bet. I yeah. bet. So, so you're ill. So, how did you transition into like what was that intellectual process of yeah. transitioning from illustrating to actually painting? I thought that uh, illustration was the only avenue for figurative work, and I was really into like tight drawings, tight renderings, you know, figurative things, realism. Um, I always thought fine art was abstract. You know, my parents didn't really take me to museums or expose me to like a, a broad avenue of cultural things. Um, so I just thought illustration was it. That's the only way for a figurative artist to express themselves. That's interesting. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, I went to school for it. I'm not a good, I failed miserably as an illustrator because requires it's actually very difficult it's much more difficult than fine art because you have to not only work by yourself but you have to work as a team as a collaborative effort with a whole set of other people not just one other person it could be a whole team on the opposite side of you telling you what to do and sending you edits and you know it's not about you anymore it's about you as part of a big team and um, I just wasn't into that I'm fundamentally selfish you know with my impulses I just want to I want to do what I want to do and um, anything else just doesn't come out right. That's you know? consistent. Yeah. That's <laughs> consistent. Yes. Yeah. So anytime I, I, I did one illustration job and um, it was for a book called The Sins of Psychology. Um, and he's a researcher in England. And we had a really great collaboration. It was just me and him. And I made it look like medieval woodcuts, you know, showing the sins of psychology, you know, going point by point. And that was the did only they, one. Did they job. send you back to the therapist? <laughs> uh, I should have been because I was so miserable in terms of like, I'm like, oh, gosh, there has to be something better for me. There has to be a better way for me to express myself. And so I, I worked after I graduated undergrad. I, I worked as an agent for a while. I worked as an assistant agent in an illustration firm, a boutique illustration firm. And I was like one of three people in the office and, you know, I would do business stuff and I learned, that's where I learned taxes and all sorts of valuable information that's that valuable. I needed to learn that they don't teach you in school, especially not in art school. Um, and all the while I'm, I'm home and I'm, I'm miserable. I'm making art, but I don't quite know where it fits. Is it illustration? No, it's not. Is it fine art? At that point, I still didn't know what fine art was or if it existed really for me. Um, and then I decided to go back to school. And the only school I applied to, grad school, was the New York Academy of Art because their whole selling point was, come figurative drawing people, come. Let us show you the ways, right? So it seduced me in that way. So I applied to it, I got in, and I went. And that's where I started my metamorphosis. And I started to learn about what fine art actually is. And all my ideas of it were actually wrong, you know. And I had a blast. Yeah. So your work... It's intricate, it's complex, it focuses on the, uh, I'm going to say the, the human anatomy, <laughs> as in genitals. Um, some, you look at it, you feel pain, you feel joy, you feel anger. So share with us, what, what do you want your audience, what do you want the viewer to feel when they view your work? If confused. Confused is confused the wrong, is oh, I think that's the perfect um, word. Conflicted. 
uh, contradicted maybe. Mm -hmm. I think we live in a really complicated world and to create, mm, I don't want to create a picture that just does or says one thing, you know, whether I succeed every time I make a picture is a whole other thing. But my basic impulse is I want to show that the world is not only a complicated place, but it's full of darkness and lightness and we're capable of great things and we're capable of terrible things all at the same time. And we can never run away from our animal nature. It betrays us at every turn. Um, so if in more and more complicated pictures, each little vignette can be sort of read on its own, you know, and where I use sex and where I use violence and where I use anatomy is to show that he, that animal side of us, you know, that no matter where we go with our brains, we'll still be in a basic animal body with right. basic animal needs. We can never escape that. We can only maybe keep it under some form of control, but even that goes horribly wrong most of the time. You know, if we try to completely limit our sexual impulses and that goes wrong and people become repressed and there's all sorts of awful things that happen from repression. Um, if we overdo it and overexpress it, other awful things happen. Um, so it's just, uh, we just live in a bag of complications and every single day, you know, and we're sort of living in an interesting moment right now because this is the first time in human history where we're able to communicate across thousands of miles instantly. And now we're exposed to all sorts of other kinds of things. And now it's becoming overwhelming. And, you know, I could go on and on about that, but the point is everything is complicated. And if somebody looks at the picture and it's like, I don't know how to feel about this and I don't know how she feels about it either, then that's fine with me. That's optimal for me, actually. So do you, do you think the critics understand your work? Um, I don't know. I, I think I don't, I don't hold a monopoly on understanding my work, you know, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to. You know. So if somebody does or doesn't or understands it differently than I would understand it, not only is that okay, but having a stranglehold of understanding would be um, unfair and unrealistic. You know, so I had a review in the Boston Globe. It was my first newspaper. I was so excited. I was like, oh, my God, in print and, and I have half a page. And, you know, and she was very complimentary. I would say it was about 75 percent nice and complimentary. But she did squeeze in a few like little, little, well, little well, nips, you know. Describe the nips. Um, one of the, the, the second or third sentences was, but she is young and her content not yet cooked. And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm going to carry that for a long time. <laughs> Young and not yet cooked. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I'm like, at first I, I didn't know how to feel because I'm like, okay, my first print published review is 75% positive. That's 75% a win. And I'm like, okay, I'm looking at this all wrong. It's 100% win for me because this woman took the time and yes. gave me the respect to yes. actually write about it. But of course, you know, like, um, I'm very hard on myself. So like, I, if I see any sort of bad anything or any sort of word that I don't necessarily like, I'll really internalize that, you know, and I'll carry it with me and, you know, it'll contribute to feelings of inadequacy and whatever else. But, you know, I think I came out of that feeling, not only is this a fantastic lesson, but it's also, I feel like a really great win for me that she even gave me the respect to critique me, you know. So. And, and 70% is a, is a strong yes. 
It is. <laughs> it's anytime you, it's over 50, okay? And it's substantially over 50. So you should feel good about that. Yeah. And I don't understand. She said it's not cooked, so meaning it's very raw. Raw, yeah. Um, in particular, she was pointing at a self-portrait that I had done, which was raw, but it was meant to be raw. So I make some portraits when I'm sad and depressed and anxious um, because it lets me, um, it lets me weaponize. I like to say weaponize my anxiety, if that makes sense, um, where I, I will take my insecurities and the things I'm most scared of and I will turn them into art. And if nothing else, I've done, I've turned those anxieties against themselves. I'm like, well, I made something out of you. You know, like, fuck you, anxiety. I made something out of you. You gave me the energy to make something. So I don't stop doing. I just do something else. I'll make really angsty, kind of nervous, anxious self-portraits. And I exercise a demon, you know, so to speak. The self-portrait I remember seeing was a nude self-portrait. Is that correct? Yeah, where I'm like sort of slitting. There's like a heart there and there's some words around it. Um, I th- and she, I think she looked at that and she thought, you know, that I'm crazy because the words around it were like, you know, they were about, they were a letter to myself basically saying that you will never be satisfied, you know, like, uh, it'll never be good enough, you know, things like that. But it becomes a halo around this figure, you know, this icon, and it essentially empowers the figure. Even if it wasn't a self-portrait, these words of sort of self, self-loathing empower her in some way, you know, and she creates something out of it. Um, I could see where somebody would look at that and be like, God, she must be neurotic or something. But I'm no more neurotic than anybody else. I just very, I listen to the neuroses and I try to let them out as much as possible, you know, and I feel like if I'm public about them, then maybe somebody will relate to that. And maybe they just won't be so bad anymore, you know, because I feel like we all share similar neuroses amongst each other. We're not that unique or singular to have completely novel thoughts and things we're anxious about. So, so I try to think about where I'm the same as everybody else. And if I just say it out loud, then maybe um, that'll, that'll bring me closer to everybody else. The advantage of being an artist, you're allowed to express those exactly. deep feelings. If you're a banker in a suit, you just have to hold it all in mm-hmm. and go home and who knows yeah. what you do. Yeah. Um, interesting. Let's talk about your residency in the south of France. I know you traveled, there were four, was it four of you that went there? It was there? five of Five us, of yeah. you. How did that experience influence you and how did the people that you traveled with, how did they influence you? So this residency that I did, it was um, Will Cotton, who's a trustee at the New York Academy of Art. Um, He was organizing a residency in a little French village called Lana Pool, uh, which is a 15-minute drive from Cannes, right on the water. There's a big castle there that belonged to this American artist, expat who moved to France, who had tons and tons of money, really weird guy, inherited a bunch of money, refurbished a castle on the water uh, in the late 19th century um, and made very bizarre art. Um, Henry Clouse, his name was, Henry Clouse. And so you have this great, crazy castle on, on the water that's filled with this surreal, figurative work um, that is now a foundation. And so Will did the residency 20 years ago when he was a young artist. 
Um, and now they asked him to, they invited him back to organize the residency, um, 20 years later. And, um, so he just, Taylor made this residency. He wanted to choose four artists apart from himself, um, of various stages of their career. Um, so I was the youngest, I was the baby of the group. (laughs) So five people in this huge Mm -hmm. refurbished castle. Yeah. So our studios were in the castle and then across the street from that castle was a, it was, I called it the muffin house. It was a pink, uh, chateau with white frosting, like white, uh, decorations also on the water. It belonged to a woman called Daisy Princess of Plus. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. Did you ever think that <laughs> your weird art would lead to this? Uh, never, ever. You know, when he chose me, I was like, I was like, what? Me? Are you Are you sure? Sounds like you fit right in. Oh, oh my God. I was, because I was also the youngest, I was literally just out of school, you know, and nobody, in terms of like galleries or anything, nobody was paying attention to me. Nobody was really buying work or, you know doing much with me. So I'm like, uh, had deep rooted feelings of inadequacy of being there because everyone else was like doing really well or really established. But I was, I felt like I was the fly in the wall in this great conversation every night. So we spent every dinner together. We had breakfast together every day. We drew a couple of hours. We had, we would have a model that would come to the house. Um, and then we would have dinner together every night for a month straight. And I was there with Hillary Harkness, um, David Humphrey, and Ivy Haldeman. And I was, and Will, of course, and then I was the baby. And I, what what could I contribute to the conversation? You know, I, I have my own thoughts, feelings, and ideas, and opinions, and everything, but they had the experience, you know, the, and I was so thirsty for that. You know, I think as a young artist, just out of school, it was really easy for me um, to create a mythological future, you know, where just if I just get this gallery, if I just get this career marker, I'll be happy and everything will be great, right? So what I learned from them was that you may be old, better in your career, you may be more established in your career, but you'll still have worries and, and, and thoughts and you'll still you'll still experience everything that I'm experiencing, but in a different way and a different scale, you know, and I, it really demystified a lot of that kind of like, if I'm a successful artist, everything else will be fantastic and I'll never have to worry about anything ever again. And it demystified <laughs> that completely for me. And I'm Hello, like, wake, welcome. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, actually, no, you know, uh, there will always be things to think about. There will always be improvements to be made. There will always be thoughts to be had. There will always be something, you know. Right. Content is always a goal marker away, a goal post away, you know. So um, it was incredibly valuable. Um, but it also coincided with like this really horrible depression. Like I've, I've never experienced depression um, like that before. I had just graduated school. I was six months out of school. And it was graduate school. So that's literally the last school you can too, right? And I was 27, I was 26 or 27. Um, and I um, was like, shit, well, this is it, huh? You know, this is the rest of my life. I can't go, I can't go to school anymore. I'm, I have to figure everything out. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know anything, you know, I have no money. And um, nobody, it's like, I'm going to say this, nobody wants me, you know, it seemed like that at the time, even though I'm in the South of France, you know, whatever. But anyway, right, right. I'm, I'm a, I'm well, a you're young, so. Yeah. yeah. So um, I was really depressed, you know, while I was there. And I remember in the Mediterranean Sea, we were right in the water. I would go to the beach and I would cry. And I'm like, what the 
fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> Did they sense that? I, I cried in front of Hillary. Um, and she was, she's so sweet. And she's, she's one of the kindest, sweetest people. And she's, you know, been really helpful for me in the years since. And, you know, um, and I, in front of Ivy and Hillary and, you know, I felt like they were my family in that moment and it was really sweet. How much older were they? Uh, Ivy is, I think she's a little bit older than just a few years older than me. Um, but she's, she's been at it for longer cause she's been out of school for much longer. Um, and Hillary is, um, I'm not sure, I think 40s, so quite a, older. She's about the age of my sister, I would say. Um, so, you know, I have here I have these two other women, you know, they're older than me. They're, I feel like they're my older sisters, you know, and they're comforting me. And I'm like a piece of shit crying in the middle of this amazing day <laughs> in the south of fucking France. An amazing opportunity. <laughs> yes. I'm like, what is wrong with And you're me? so special because they picked you. That alone yeah. says yeah. a lot. And yes. then I'm like, you know, and then it sort of became this thing. I'm like, why am I depressed in what is essentially an incredibly privileged position to be in? And a lot of it had to do with feelings of deep-seated inadequacy, like I didn't belong there, I didn't deserve to be there, you know, and I was really grappling with those feelings. So the depression passed. Luckily, I haven't felt anything like it since. I've sort of found a way to sort of um, keep my mental health in check and to... You know, I, I've, I see, if I see it coming, like I know what to do, like I'll make a moody self-portrait or something, <laughs> you know. Um, and um, ever since then, it was, it's, been, it's been good. I've just been making work. And even if it's quiet in my studio and I'll have mopey feelings, I could deal and process with them relatively well now. So you're introspective. Yeah, probably too much sometimes. I just wish I could turn it off, you know. Yeah, but it sounds like you're in a healthy state. And when, and when you get off course, you can bring yourself back. Yeah. Which is, and it's a consistent manner of bringing yourself back. Yeah, well, yeah. after dealing with something that deep and dark, you almost never want to go through that again. So you almost want to shield yourself somehow and find the right things to do. Maybe it's my diet. I don't know. Having the right people around you. I have a really fantastic boyfriend. He's really good. I have great friends, you know. So, so I, I talk a lot about these things, you know, with my friends. Oh, that's good. It's therapy. <laughs> <Yeah>. Every said <laughs> therapy session, right? <laughs> exactly. Inexpensive therapy. Exactly. So, so it was while you were there that you started to work with copper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Explain that. I had taken an etching class in school, and etching just wasn't for me because it's super process oriented. So you have to, uh, you have to make sure every step along the way is one hundred percent right. And I'm like, lazy, I want immediate results. And I just wasn't into it. But I had all these really beautiful plates. And I had learned that Rembrandt painted on the back of his etching plates sometimes. And those are some of the most gorgeously preserved paintings of his. Um, A few of them only exist. But then I really read into it. There's a whole tradition of painting on copper, oil paintings on copper, that goes back a long time. It went out of fashion at some point. Um, Still out of fashion. Mainly because, you know, copper is... uh, as a surface, it's, it's heavy, it's cumbersome, it's not easy to get. I won't say it's expensive because it's it's actually not expensive at all. People think it is, and if they continue to think it is and it looks expensive, I'm not going right, 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 right. to tell them they're wrong. <laughs> um, no, it's it's so so. I started painting on it, and I it's I never looked back. It's really an amazing, amazing surface to work on for the way that I work. So it tarnishes. How um, do you manage that? Um, if it well, like even like a penny won't tarnish for a long time, you know, and if it does, it turns brown. So it's not really that tragic, but if it's exposed to acid, then it turns green. So, uh, I just take care not to expose it to anything acidic. Um, and if I varnish it, it won't tarnish. It's only if it's exposed to oxygen and oil, um, like 
hand oils and stuff that it tarnishes. So uh, with a nice coat of varnish, and if it's not touched, then it actually won't tarnish probably for 100 years, you know. And even if it does, there's something that happens with the adhesion of oil paint to copper that it bonds in a very specific sort of way, which is what allows it to be preserved and ar- ar- it's archival. Right, 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 right. What's the heaviest piece you've... It's Do you know? It's supposed to be like 75 pounds, 80 pounds. Yeah. yeah, but that's because I, I made the mistake of using a furniture-grade birch ply behind it, which itself weighs like 50 pounds. So, um, yeah, uh, they're, they're heavy. <laughs> I have good shoulders. And transporting. Yeah. And, that, and the galleries, I mean. So the piece that I saw mm-hmm. at spring break, was that on copper? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that, huh? So how much does that little piece, uh, how much did that weigh? Or does it's it not, weigh? It's not that, not that much. I found a way to make a cradle panel that doesn't have, a, maybe it weighs like five pounds or something. It's not very heavy. You, um, Stephen Savitas, publisher of New American Paintings, invited you, uh, he wanted to feature you. Mm -hmm. And Daniel, the author, Mm -hmm. Daniel Maidmand, Mm -hmm. he commented that he considers your work, uh, he considers you a literary painter. Share your opinion on his opinion. Um, Well, literary painter sounds... It sounds like a, a narrative, uh, well, not narrative, it sounds like a linear narrative, right? Um, I don't think, I think the word anecdotal is probably best suited, you know, because the narratives are so not linear. But the way that he described it, which I really appreciated, was that he did actually, he chose to follow a very specific line, a compositional line, thread through the work, you know, and that's why he described it as, um, um, what was the word? Uh literary, right? Because he read that one thread, you know, and there's multiple threads. Um, I really love, I love that he also focused on the, the development of my work. Like he showed a few of my really, really old paintings, like back when I was painting, like, you know, beautiful women with, you know, stuff on their nipples, um, very tight paintings. Um, so literary, I would say anecdotal, you know, but I, I appreciate that, um, he took a literary stance to it and tried to create a narrative, a linear narrative from it, you know. It was an interesting read. And I liked the images that he chose. Let's talk about what artists influenced your work. Is there an artist that did influence your work at all? So I wasn't familiar with any contemporary artists, really. um, Oh, that's right, because you... Yeah, it was pretty, pretty dumb when it came to fine art. So it's really organic. Yeah, well, I I was really into medieval art or northern Renaissance art, or um, and through that I was exposed to um, other kinds of medieval work from other regions, like Persian miniatures, and even my own cultural background, like miniature art is a huge thing, you know, making miniature lacquer boxes, miniature paintings and lacquer boxes. There's like a juicy deliciousness to it. It has an object quality to it. But I, even from an early age, was obsessed with medieval stuff. Um, Van der Veden, Van Eyck, Hieronymus Bosch, Bruegel, things like that. Those were the people that I looked to and I looked at. You know, for me, they were the most interesting. It's pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, when I was uh, when I was in school, the New York Academy favored um, 
Well, they had a very Eurocentric art historical model, you know, and it was not only Eurocentric, but like Southern Renaissance focused, you know, like, oh, Caravaggio is the greatest, you know, painting started in Italy. Um, And I was like, no, no, it didn't. You know, I was, I, I, because I was strongly, I strongly disliked, I still dislike Caravaggio. I know, please, people don't hate me too much. I don't like Caravaggio. I never did. Um, But because I didn't, and I had to articulate why I didn't like him, I had to gain a stronger sense of why I don't like it and what it is that I do like. So I focused more on Northern Renaissance, even when my teachers told me to focus on Southern Italy or, or, or whatever it is. But then even the distinction becomes really silly when you start talking about one region versus another. I mean, how much does it really matter where painting started, you know, or, or the evolution of painting as if it's some sort of trajectory from worse to better? You know, I thought all of those things were, were, were bullshit. Yeah, you know? And how can we be so sure? Exactly. Before we end this, I do want to ask you to share with us upcoming shows, residencies, those things in the future that excite you. Yeah, yeah. Well, 2019, I had nothing going on. 2020, I have a ton of things going on. I'm really excited. Um, very nervous. Um, Don't I have, be nervous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, it's the first year where I have to, like, really deliver. You know, okay. I have to really, I'm going to be seen and... and where you're making work in your studio quietly by yourself is lovely, you know, because nobody's looking and you could do whatever you, you could fuck up as much as you want. There's much less license, I think, to do that now. But uh, not complaining. I'm so excited. Um, I have a group show coming up at Anna Zorina, which Deborah Brown is curating with Patty Horing, the self-portrait show. Um, that's happening sometime in the summer. I don't have an exact date right now. Um, and then I have a group show at Manya Row Gallery, um, uh, where I'm also having a solo show at the end of the year. Um, and Steven Zevitas was saying about going to uh, Miami in December, um, but it's still quite early to even, I don't, I've never been to Art Basel. I'm excited. I'm excited. I've never been to Miami, period. Yeah. I heard it's a spectacle in, in the best possible way, in the worst possible way. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. You'll enjoy Art Basel. It's a, an interesting collection of work, definitely an interesting collection of people, and the weather is fantastic. There's a lot of parties. The yeah. weather's great. It's Miami. Yeah. But thank you so much. I appreciate you coming here. Thank so, you for It's been great. Me. And don't change your painting style. Keep it kinky. Keep it unique. Thank so, you. Thank yes. you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.